Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Um, we, we are always humbled uh, by it as we come before you through it, as you speak. Uh, you spoke thousands of years ago through Isaiah, and yet you still speak just as profoundly today through these words. And we're so grateful for that, Lord, and we, we just pray that we would see Jesus in this because that's what this is all about. We're here for Jesus and, and what he's done for us. And so, God, I pray you would get me out of the way as we walk through this text. And it's all about Christ and what he's done for us, and we, would, we just pray humbly that that, would be, that that would be true. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Isaiah 1, um, verse 1. And here's what we're going to do. Isaiah is a really long book. It's 66 chapters. Um, aside from the Psalms, it's the longest book in the Bible. And so this is going to take a while for us to get through this book. Okay, it's, there's no getting around it. I think I've pretty much gotten it down to about a year uh, in this book with, for us. So it's going to be a journey. There may, you know, who knows? There may be some breaks in there uh, as the Lord leads us. But, but at, at this point, we're planning on just powering through for about a year. Um, and, and that actually, if you can do the math, you know, 66 chapters uh, there's only 52 weeks in a year, so that means we're not covering uh, just one chapter a week. In some weeks, we're going to co- take several weeks to get through a chapter, like chapter one. We're just going to go through it for a few weeks. And other chapters, we're going to kind of lump together into sermons because uh, some of what uh, Isaiah writes takes a long time for him to say what he's saying, and sometimes it spans multiple chapters. So at the end of the day, when it all breaks down uh, between taking longer in some chapters and smushing a lot of chapters together into one sermon, um, at the end of the day, it'll come out to about a year that we're in this book. So that's where we're going to be. And we'll start it out here in verse one. And verse one is really helpful because it's the introduction to the book. It's very short. It's not a long introduction. It doesn't set up a lot of detail, uh, but it does answer some very key questions. It answers the question of what, which is what is this book? What are we embarking on? What, what are we, what are we going to be tackling as we go through this? It's also going to answer who, right? Who wrote it? Who's involved in it? What, the, what is this um, going, going through there? And then it'll answer the question of when, which is when did this happen historically? Um, and, and so we'll just kind of see each of those questions answered uh, in the first verse. So, so if you want to follow along here, I'll, I'll read it for us. It says this, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So answering those questions, what is this? Well, it is the vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So in other words, Isaiah is not coming up with the things that he's saying. He's seeing what God wants him to see and saying what God wants him to say. But it's interesting that he, uh, he refers to this as a vision, singular. Whereas actually when we read the book, we're going to see this is a lot of different like sermons and messages and things from the Lord, a lot of different ones. And so why is he lumping them all into one vision? Well, uh, really foundationally, it's because 
this book is a collection, an edited collection of Isaiah's entire ministry as a prophet. So his whole ministry uh, over the course of all the years that he did this work is, is edited and put together in this book. And so at some point towards the end of his life, he, he put all this together and he compiled it into an into a understandable way. So yes, it's a bunch of different things, uh, and yet it's all one con, you know, con, con, congruent uh, I thought and idea. So that's what this is. We also know who this, or, or who's writing this. It's, uh, that's not hard, right? Isaiah, right? We get that part. Isaiah, the son of Amos, uh, is, the, is the author. He's the one that put all this together. He's the one who preached these words. Now, God's talking through most of the book, and Isaiah's just relaying what God has to say. But, but we have to ask ourselves, who is Isaiah? Let's, let's start there. Who is Isaiah? Well, we don't really know a lot about him biographically. Um, what we do know, uh, we pick up from the book. There's not a whole lot of like details um, outside of Isaiah. We don't know who he was in, in terms of, um, you know, we know his dad's name, but we don't know a lot of his family tree. We don't know a lot of that. And that's okay. I actually think that's the kind of the point. I think kind of the point of Isaiah is that it's not about Isaiah. It's not about him. This is not a book about Isaiah. It's a book about God and what God does and what God has to do for his people. And, and that clue actually is picked up in Isaiah's name. The name Isaiah means uh, our God saves. That's what Isaiah means. It means God saves, our God saves. And, and that is foundationally the message of the book. That's the message of Isaiah, that God saves sinners. We're going to see that throughout this whole thing. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. It is, it's truly amazing that we can study this book and work through this book and know that it's not really about Isaiah. We don't learn hardly anything about him as a person. We find out that he's married and he has children as we get through the book, but that's about the extent of it. Um, we don't even know, um, you know where he was born. We don't know how, exactly how he died. Uh, the, the history of the church tells us that he was sawn in half, which is a great way to end pastoral ministry. So my, my retirement, you guys can, can do that, I guess. Um, please don't. Um, but, but so we, we don't really know how Isaiah, was, where he was born or, or where or when he died. Um, but that's, that's the point. The amazing thing about Isaiah is that this is all about God saving sinners. And he's just going to use this, this guy, this frail man named Isaiah to get that message across. Um, it's also a really uh, kind of a depressing book because in some sense, um, the message is amazing if we have ears to hear and hearts to receive. But Isaiah's people, the people he was preaching to, they did not like what he had to say, and they did not respond. This, this book, I kind of look at this as God is using Isaiah and his ministry to try to call his people back to him. We're going to see that in, in this first chapter. The whole point is that he's calling these rebellious sinners back to him, to come to him in repentance, to believe in his salvation, to trust in him. And, and it's sad because they did not, as a whole. Isaiah 
did not have an effective ministry, if you want to think about it in terms of conversions or people coming to faith or people turning from their sin. He had, on all those worldly metrics, Isaiah's ministry was a complete failure because people did not respond to him. In fact, they cut him in half, we think. So that doesn't, that doesn't you know, indicate a real soft heart towards his message. Um, so I, Isaiah is, um, in some ways, it's a sad reminder of the hardness of the human heart, but it doesn't have to be. By, by the grace of God, we can have softened hearts and open ears and open eyes to his grace to us, which is amazingly everywhere in this book. His grace is everywhere um, if we're looking for it and for seeing it. Um, so this book fun- foundationally is God announcing to us through Isaiah, that he, and he alone, saves sinners. And that's a truth that we, we um, really, it's better than we give it credit for. Last question that's answered in verse 1 is when, and we're told that these, this vision that, that Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem took place in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So his ministry spanned a a fairly long time. Four different kings were uh, were alive during the ministry of Isaiah. Now, Uzziah died in the first year that Isaiah was called. So he didn't really overlap a whole lot with Uzziah. He did a little. Um, Jotham and Ahaz or really the, the lengthier ones, and then Hezekiah as well, um, he had a decent amount of time with. Um, and we're going to learn all about Hezekiah in this book. He, there's quite a section about him. Um, but, but anyways, th- this is just a, a, a lifelong uh, chronicled message of Isaiah's ministry in, I, in Israel. So that's where we're at. All right, that's enough, I think, to be getting on with for the, for the duration of our time. Um, let's look, we're going to look at verse 2 through 9 as, and, and just sort of taking chapter 1 a little bit slowly. Um, we want to, the first chapter of a book like this is foundational, right? So we want to spend some good time on it, really understand what God's message here is. And, and so we're going to break this up into a few sermons and looking at the first nine verses today. Um, but here's what chapter one really is. It, it shows us the before picture of, uh, uh, you, you all know the before and after pictures, whether that's weight loss or whether that's hair loss or any of these commercials that you see. You, you always get the picture before and the person always looks so sad, right? Like you do not want to be that schlubby dude with no hair. Uh, you don't want to be that guy. So take our medicine and you'll be this guy, the same guy, but he's happy now and he's got hair and whatever. But that, that before picture is never a pretty picture, right? It never is. And, it's, and that's really what God's showing us in chapter one. He's showing us the before, what we are if we're left to ourselves. That's key, if we're left to ourselves. This is not us in Christ, but this is us outside of him, left to ourselves. Later on in the book, we're going to see kind of this piece together uh, after picture of what God promises to do uh, for everyone that he saves. And so it's going to get a little bit more optimistic as time goes on. The first part of the book is not going to be real optimistic. I'll just tell you that. Um, but it's honest 
And I've, I've always said uh, here that it's honesty that we love and the, that God is so honest with us. And that's really going to be demonstrated in Isaiah. Later on, we'll see more of this kind of after picture. And then ultimately, the book does end with this incredible picture of what God will create in the new heavens and the new earth with new us, uh, our uses, I guess, I don't know how to say that, where, where God will actually accomplish what he set out to do. So the book is very optimistic in that sense. As, as you go through the trajectory, it, is, it starts off real uh, depressing in some sense and, and gets a little bit better and then it, it culminates in a really positive vision of what God is doing ultimately through Jesus. But, but it's going to take us a while to get there. So I'm, I'm going to try to give you glimpses of that all the way around. I don't want to leave us on a Sunday morning just like, you feeling like a worm because Jesus died for your sins and he loves you and, and, and he has a plan for you in Christ. And what's amazing is that even in the really sad parts of Isaiah, there's always a glimpse of that grace that we're going to see. It's like, it's all, it's just kind of peppered throughout this whole book. And we're going to see that even in, in this section. Um, so Isaiah 1 opens up the way for us uh, to see... Uh, God's glorification, but that happens through our self, uh, our deconstructing our self-glorification. We have to knock ourselves down a few pegs if we're going to lift God up as to where he belongs. So that's where we're going to go, all right? Um, Let's look at verse 2, 2 through four is kind of the first section. There are really three kind of categories here that we're going to look at as we work through this. And let's, uh, let's just start in verse uh, two. Uh, here's what it says. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah begins with this message. Listen up. God's talking. He's going to say something to you, and you need to hear it. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. And then from there, he's going to quote God. The, the rest of what we're going to see, in this is all God's voice, God's word, what God is telling Isaiah to relay to his people. <clears throat> and here it goes. It starts this way. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. This is not a happy start to a book, right? Children, God says, that I have reared, that I have raised, that that I have cared for, that I have brought together, they've rebelled against me. God here is calling a family meeting. Did you ever have family meetings when you were growing up? When we did, it was never good. <laughs> My dad never brought us together for a family meeting and told us we were going to Disney World or something. It never happened. It was always a rebuke. And maybe, that, maybe that isn't great, but that's how it was, okay? And, and I love my dad. My dad and I have a great relationship. But growing up, when my dad would call a family meeting, and it was very rare when it happened, uh, but when it would happen, we knew we were in trouble. We just, we just, and I would just start looking at my brothers going, what did you guys do? What, what did you do? Because it, it's not me. I, I, no, it was. It was usually me. But um, 
but I had to pass the blame, right? So that, this is what's happening. It's, it's a little bit of a dreadful thing to have a family meeting. <laughs> and uh, at least in my house it was. And so I can understand what God's doing. And it's like, okay, here we go, guys. Come on in. And it's not gonna be good. <laughs> I've, he's, he's just basically saying, I, I loved you. I created you. I cared for you. I, I provided for you. And what are you doing? You're rebelling. You're rebelling against me. He, he then goes on to say in verse three, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He, he's saying here this, that um, he, he's saying two things in these two verses. He's saying first that we're rebellious and second, he's saying we're stupid. He is. That's, see, so you, put, you, you compile a list of intelligent animals, ox and donkeys are not going to make that list. They're not. They're, they're not intelligent beasts. They are stupid animals. And, and, and you know what? God always uses stupid animals to describe us. Sheep, we're usually sheep. Here we're an ox or a donkey. Again, not intelligent creatures. But here's the thing that God's pointing out. Even an ox and a donkey knows where to go to get food. Like, they may not be real intelligent beasts, but they at least know that. They know where to go to get their food. They know where the barn is. They know where the trough is. They can figure that out. And, and yet God's saying, and you can't even figure that out. An ox and a donkey can figure out where to go to be provided for, and you guys can't even figure that out. You're, you're rebellious, and you're stupid. Real positive start to the book, Right? <laughs> But this is, this is what we need to hear. This is us left to ourselves, left to our own devices without uh, being uh, submissive to God's word and God's way. This is who we are. We're, re- we're rebels. We're fools. And verse four, he, he says this, ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Um, This is really, uh, verse 4 is really the definition of what rebellious children are to God. He's just giving us the bullet points of what a rebel looks like. Uh, what a rebellious and stupid person looks like. This is the definition. It is sinful, laden with iniquity. Iniquity are intentional acts of rebellion, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. This is, none of this is positive. This is all bad, but this is what we are left to ourselves. And then it says that these people, these rebellious and foolish people, have forsaken the Lord... We've forsaken him. We've turned our backs on him. We say, we're not, you're not good for us. We don't want you. And they have despised the Holy One of Israel. Despising someone is not a little thing. It's like a true, just genuine hatred. And, and the fact of the matter is, and this is hard for us to hear, is that we are these people left to ourselves. The Bible refers to us in, in no uncertain terms as enemies of God. 
Not because God's our enemy, but because we've made him our enemy. God is our father who created us, who loves us, who wants to redeem us through Jesus. And yet we are the rebellious ones. We are the ones that that turn our backs and forsake him. We're the ones that despise him, the Holy One of Israel. And he says that these people are utterly estranged. Estranged means we're, we're, we're cut apart. We're, we're not together. And so we see in this section, in verses two through four, what we're seeing is God laying out for his people the, the brokenness of his heart because of rebellious and foolish people that he wants to bring back. He wants us to come home. He wants us to be with him, but he's got to lay out the truth first and the truth is not pleasant. The truth is hard. But it's God's broken heart that he's describing here. And then uh, verse five through eight will be the next section. So we're going to take some time on these. Um, Here's what it says. It says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? God asks this question, and he's going to answer the question for us. Um, But he asks the question, why will you still be struck down? Like, haven't you learned your lesson that you shouldn't rebel against me? (laughs) Haven't you learned this? And and they should have by now, right? Because you've got a long history with these people. Uh, From Abraham's family to this point in history, uh, the people of Israel have just been rebellious, it, it was highlighted greatly during the, the Exodus episodes where, where they're wandering through the wilderness because of their rebellion. God said, okay, well, I'll give you 40 years to think over this. <laughs> you're going to just kind of circle around the promised land because you've got to think about what you're doing here. And so he, he puts them in like this, you know, time out for 40 years. Um, and basically everybody who was the first generation of people that, that he brought out of Egypt, they all died during that 40-year period. And then this new generation of their children and grandchildren, that group of people were the ones that came into the land. And now they've been in the land, but they're still rebelling. They've, they've been rebelling ever since. And so God's asking the question, why in the world will you still be struck down? Will, why will you continue to rebel? And here's the answer. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What he's telling us is this, that the reason that we continue to rebel and we continue to reject him in our own strength, apart from him, is because we have no strength. We have nothing to lift ourselves up with. The reason we continue to rebel, the reason that we are struck down, is because our head is sick, our heart is faint, and, and from the bottom of our foot to the top of our head, we have no strength in ourselves. We're no, there's no soundness, is what he says. Soundness, being something being sound means it's secure, it's strong, it's not going to go anywhere. And here you have these people who are, who are being struck down, they're being rebellious, and the reason for that is because they're sinners. From the, from the bottom of their foot to the top of their head, we're sinners. All we have are bruises and sores and raw wounds. We have nothing 
to offer God that is impressive. We have nothing in our own ability to do for ourselves or to save ourselves. We have broken minds. We have broken hearts. We have no strength. So God is saying, there's a problem here. Your rebellion is never going to be fixed because of or by your own power. It's not going to happen. He goes on in verse 7. He says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion, the daughter rather of Zion, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Here's what he's saying. I mean, now Israel is obviously a nation, right? And, and the people of God have always been the people of God. Paul tells us in Romans that, that Gentiles have been grafted into the same family as the Gentiles. We're all, we're all one family. We're all children of Abraham if we trust in Jesus. That's, some of us are adopted into that family and some of us were born into that family through our birth line, but all of us have to enter in through faith. Right? Even, the, even the people of Israel that are nationally or ethnically Israeli, they have to believe in Jesus. That's, that's very clear in the New Testament. And so here, they're, they're dealing with this actual tangible destruction of their nation where God is sending other countries like the Assyrians or the Babylonians in these surrounding nations into Israel to ransack it, to destroy it, to, to ruin it. And he's doing that for their good because in the, at the end of the day, he's going to draw them back to him through those things. But what he's saying here is that you don't have the ability to save yourself. You have this broken mind, this broken heart, you're helpless, and, and yet you're also like this city that's being ransacked. You're like, you're like this helpless city that can do nothing but watch as your city burns to the ground. Uh, you, you're just helplessly standing there watching this train wreck. And, and then he uses this analogy of this booth in a vineyard, a lodge in a cucumber field like a besieged city. And he's saying that the, the daughter of Zion, the, the, he's, that's another way of saying my people are left and they're like this booth in a vin- no, so what is that analogy? What's he saying there? Well, he's saying that they, they've just been left like, a, like an abandoned shack. This, this hollowed out former thing that, that's no longer good for anything. I, I think of it like this, when you're driving past these farms and some of the farms have these barns that are just like collapsed onto the ground, right? They're just in pieces. That barn's not good for much anymore, is it? can't store anything in a barn that's been collapsed on the ground. And, and that's what God is saying to his people. He's saying, you guys are like a worthless barn that's been burned down or has collapsed under the weight of, of snow or has been um, pillaged by enemies. And he's, he's saying, you guys are, are just as uh, desolate as that. This is not a positive picture. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to give us the warm fuzzies about ourselves. It's meant to show us what we're really like apart from Jesus. And, and we could stop there and you guys could all leave just being, feeling really terrible. Or we could read verse 9 and see where it goes because I think that's 
probably helpful. Even in the midst of this, there is hope. That's what's amazing. Is that even throughout, I mean, just kind of peppered throughout this book are these little glimpses of hope. That yeah, God is giving us a hard uh, lesson here. He's telling us things that we don't want to hear. No one wants to hear this. I don't want to hear that I'm weak and pathetic. I don't want to hear that I'm a fool and that I'm rebellious, but I am apart from Jesus. And so we, we don't want to hear it, but we need to hear it. And yet we also need to hear the hope of the gospel. And it's in verse 9. And it might sound strange, but, I, but it's there. It is there. Listen to this. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All right, now, now that, that verse may not sound positive, but it is. Because li- listen to what it says. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. So what, what's the implication here? He did. God has preserved people. He has protected people. He has kept people alive and well. He says, if he hadn't done that, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you know that story? Most of you probably are familiar with it, at least to some degree. Um, Genesis uh, recounts this story of these, of these twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and they were destroyed by God because of the rampant sin that was in those cities. But even in that story, there is redemption because God spares some of the people. And, and you'll, if you remember that story, um, the, this cousin, I think it was a cousin or nephew, I think, of, of Abraham, this guy named Lot, I think it was his nephew, he goes, uh, he's, he's with Abraham, and they've got too many animals. They can't, you know, share the same pasture. And, and so Abraham says to Lot, okay, you choose where you want to go, and I'll go in the other direction. We'll just split up here because we can't sustain this with this many animals. And so Lot decides, I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes to the city, and Abraham goes to the country. And I think, there, I think there's a parable there for us, okay? So live, in the, live rural, not, not in cities. No, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I grew up in the city, and that's why I'm up here now, because uh, I read Sodom and Gomorrah. No. Um, but it's a, so, so Lot's there, and Lot, you know, by all, he's not a perfect guy by any means, but he seems to have some faith in the Lord, and, and God comes to him, uh, mostly because of Abraham, to, to preserve Abraham's family. He goes to Lot, and he warns him, uh, you, you guys got to get out of the city, because I'm going to destroy it. It's, it's too rampantly evil. And uh, Lot just basically says to the Lord, well, would you spare it if there were a hundred, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, if there were like a hundred righteous people in the city who loved you, would you spare the city? And God said, of course. I'd, yeah, I'd spare the whole city for that hundred people. And, and then Lot goes, well, well, what if there's only 50? Would you save it for 50? And God said, yeah, I'd, I'd save the whole city. I would keep this whole city alive if there were 50 righteous people. And, and then, then Lot goes, well, what about 20? <laughs> And he's just kind of counting down. And God says, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for 20. And he says, well, what about 10? And, and he says, yeah, even for, if there were 10 righteous people in this city, I'll spare it. And God can't even find 10 people. There, there was Lot and his, and his wife and their daughters. That was it. 
And so the city was destroyed. Now what, but, they, but those people were spared. Now Lot's wife turned around and turned to a pillar of salt and we all know that interesting story. But, but so she had some trouble leaving the city. Um, and, and yet the, the rest of them got out and God spared them. This is what, the, this is what Isaiah is talking about. He's saying that God spared those people he's, and he's sparing some of us. Here's what we need to hear from this. We need to hear that the church of Jesus Christ survives because God saves sinners. He spares people from judgment. He he sees what we would become left to ourselves. He absolutely knows. And, And yet in mercy, he stretches out his hand and he says, I will save you. I will not let you go. I will rescue you. This, this is why, I mean, the church is not a perfect thing. None of us are perfect in this room. This church is not a perfect church, not even close. And you will never find a church that's a perfect church. I th- it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who lived back in the 19th century, uh, pastored a megachurch, uh, really the first megachurch uh, in London. Um, and he, he pastored that church. And um, he said at one point that uh, there is no perfect church. And if you were to find one, the moment you walked in the door, it would stop being perfect. That's true. And he's, just, and he's talking about himself and he's talking about all of us. Like, that's true. There is no perfect church, but the church of Jesus Christ thrives in our world even today because God in his mercy spares and he loves and he pursues us. This is also why, though we have such a capacity for evil as sinful people, Every one of us, um, uh, at least the majority of people, do not just explode with evil all the time. Right? I mean, there are good acts of kind things done by people who don't love Jesus. There are, there are bad things that people do as well, of course. But, but the reason why this whole world is not exploding with actual evil power is because God, in his preserving grace, keeps us from having to relive the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, what we, we, we can read that story and we can go, oh man, they're just so bad. But we are what they were. We are. We deserve what they got. That's what God says here. And the only reason that we're still here is that in his overruling mercy, he saves us from ourselves. He, he saves us from ourselves. And actually, this, this passage is quoted in the book of Romans chapter 9, um, and Paul uses this verse, this particular verse, verse 9, in Romans chapter 9. And, and in the context of that chapter, Paul's trying to answer the question of why did so much of Israel reject Jesus? Obviously, we know not everyone in Israel in the first century rejected Jesus. The church was built upon people um, who came to faith in Christ out of the Jewish people. But, but as a whole, as, as a gener- generally speaking, the nation of Israel rejected Christ. And Paul's trying to answer the question, well, did God, like, did he renege on his promise? Did he not come through? Did he not do what he said he was going to do? He said he was going to save these people. And what, what about all these lost people from Israel, what, what about them? And he's answering that question. And he uses this verse to talk about the Gentiles and how God has brought into his people, 
He's formed the church out of Jews and Gentiles, these people who trust in Jesus. He forms the church and he keeps that church preserved and protected. Um, and, and he uses this to, to make that point. And it's an amazing thing that, that God, though we deserve to die like Sodom and Gomorrah, God spares us. He saves us. And he saves us from ourselves. Now, Isaiah 1, and really this, this passage and, and really going forward here, um, the intention is to convict us of our sins. It is. It's, it's there to put in front of us our desperate need. We, we all need Jesus. And we got to feel that. We need to feel that sense and we got to respond to it. Here's the thing. We can feel convicted of millions of sins without ever experiencing any healing from God. Did you know that? You can feel bad about your life all day long. But that doesn't in itself bring you to Jesus. And here's, here's the key. The, the only conviction of sin that ends up healing us is when we see how we have despised and forsaken the one who died to save us. That conviction of sin of how we have despised and forsaken the Holy One of Israel. The very very man who hung on a a cross to save us from these sins. That we we have to come to grips with that. You have, I have despised and forsaken him. You have too. We all have. And it's, it's the conviction of that super sin, if you want to call it that, that opens us up to the healing of all of our other sins. Feeling convicted about the little things are like putting band-aids on bullet wounds. Like it's not going to do a whole lot of good. If, but if we come to grips with what we've done to God and all sin flows from that rebellion, it flows from that rejection, it flows from, from our despising of him. That's where everything else flows from. So if we come to grips with that, if we deal with that, if we, if we come to terms with the fact that we've rejected the Holy One of Israel and we repent of that and we face that and we, we bring that to Jesus and acknowledge our, our failure to love him as we ought, that's, that, that's what opens the door to everything else. And so we, we need to be confronted with that. And what, so just let, me, just let me say this. One of the reasons why here at Springbrook we are a weekly communion church is because we want to give you a weekly opportunity to be confronted by this. And there are some weeks where we do communion together, which we're going to do today. And then there's weeks where we do it individually as we have at the, at the stations and the tables. But we are a weekly communion church because we need to be confronted every Sunday with our need for him. Even as we've spent time this week despising and rejecting him, in every act of sin, no matter how small, is an act of rejecting the one who died to save us. It's that serious. And it's not that we lose our salvation every time we sin. God holds us. He preserves us. 
but our tangible walk with him, our tangible uh, uh, relationship with him is harmed and damaged and broken through our, our acts of rebellion. So we need to be reminded week after week of this. We need to be reminded ultimately that it's not our good works. It's not even partaking of communion. It's not coming to this building and worshiping that saves us. We need to be reminded that it is only the blood of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that shields us from God's judgment. No amount of good works are going to do that. No amount of impressiveness that you, or what you think is impressive, is going to impress God. Why? Because from the sole of our foot to the top of our head, we have nothing sound. There's nothing you can bring to him. We have to be reminded of this reality. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to partake of his table today, which is an invitation to, to that reminder that his blood covers every sin, even the super sin of rejecting and forsaking him. It covers, his blood covers us, and the table is one of those tangible in our hands, on our taste buds, reminder that Jesus died to save us from our sins. And so I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and prepare to lead us. Um, What we're going to do, and I'm also going to invite our servers, if, if... Y'all are in here uh, to come up just to the front here. As I pray, you can come up and we'll we'll partake of the Lord's table together. So let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that even in these hard passages, uh, even in these texts that are uh, difficult, um, painful, um, hard to hear, that, that you, God, would meet us in our need, that you would meet us at your table, that you would remind us of your grace, that you would help us in this. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.